passage tonight that we're going to consider from the scriptures is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We mentioned this morning that it's in the consideration and the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the proclamation of his coming, his kingdom, his purposes, his person, his work, is how the church is built. And so we're going to do that very thing tonight. We're going to look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, probably a familiar passage, but we're going to see that transition from what God had done in the Old Testament to what he did in the person of Christ some 30 years, perhaps, before the writing of our epistle in Hebrews. And so we're going to look at it sort of in that framework. What had occurred long prior, what God had done in announcing the coming of Christ, what had just recently, only 30 years before the writing of Hebrews occurred, and then what the author of Hebrews says are the conclusions we should draw from this. And I think those conclusions that applied to the, to the audience then of the writer of Hebrews apply to us today. They're the same conclusions we should draw, and so hopefully we'll make application in that third section. But uh, hear the reading of the word of God, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pause in prayer for our understanding and the Spirit's aid in our understanding of the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you. We understand, Lord, that it is foundational to our understanding of Christ. And as Christ was being explained to the saints of old, uh, in even about 60 AD, about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection, Father, Christ is every bit as central and viable to us today. So, Lord, help us to understand your Son the better. Would you ask it in Jesus' name? Amen. I've been preaching through Hebrews in West Virginia, and it's a tough book. It's, it's, there's a lot of Old Testament references that we're not particularly familiar with, and the subject matter is, would be very relevant and very well understood by the audience to whom the book was written, the Hebrew people, because they understood the sacrifices, they understood the priesthood. But in our passage today, it's introductory to all that, and it focuses on Christ, who he is, and the fact that he was in the Old Testament, clearly proclaimed. And he had recently come, just 30 years before, I would would estimate. And so now the author of Hebrews, is trying to convince people not to go back to the Judaism of old, not to go back to the temple sacrifices, not to go back to the feast days, that Christ was the fulfillment of all that. And so as we look at it, I think the passage does break down in that way. Uh, Who Christ has always been from eternity past. He's the same yesterday and today and forever who Christ has always been and what he's recently done 
in terms of 60 AD, some 30 years, what he's recently done, his death and his resurrection, fulfilling all of the promises in the Old Testament of the Messiah, is better than everything that came prior. And that's the author's argument to the Hebrew people. Christ, your Messiah, is better than the prophets of old, and he's better than the sacrifices, and he's better than this Old Testament priesthood, and he's better even than angels, which they all would have been familiar with. And so he's making that very argument. And so I think the conclusion of his argument is that he has reason to continue on, not to go back to the Old Testament systems, but he's also reason for us to continue on in our faith and worship of Christ today. When we realize what he's done, who he is, and what he's completed, it encourages us to not lose hope, to not give up, but to keep on keeping on. And so let's get into our passage a little bit. I want to start with what occurred long ago. And it's reaching back into the Old Testament. We can think as far back as Genesis 3.15, that the, ser- the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. It's complete and total victory. And he's in the, in the Pentateuch all through. Uh, the, the, the covenants made to the patriarchs. Moses prophesied or told of a prophet who would be like Moses, but that people would actually listen to him. I, you can always hear Moses' frustration. You never listen to me, but there's a prophet coming and you listen to him. And so that is all there. And it says in a verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And we can think of sort of many different ways, many different approaches, many different types of messages, in in many different ways, many different times and places. So the message had been repeated over and over, and in many different ways. Just to give a couple of them, the Old Testament patriarchs, the covenant made with Abraham, that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman. And Moses, in in the fact that a prophet like Moses would come, in the law itself. And so as we think of the Mosaic law, we don't need to think of that as anything other than the covenant of grace. The law given to Moses was gracious, Because it helped people understand the holy, righteous demands of God. And so it was an education, it was an understanding that perhaps the most gracious aspect of it was to explain to all who were familiar with the law of Moses that you're never going to keep the law of Moses and earn favor with God. You're never going to be able to be righteous enough to earn heaven. And so God's sort of setting that aside from the beginning to say, you're going to need a savior. And so even in the law, it's gracious. In the judges, they would come and and draw Israel back to the service and to the worship of God. To David as king. That a king would come one day to reign on David's throne forever. This was another way that the message of of Christ was given. In Isaiah, we, we celebrate so many of uh, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a Savior is born, unto us uh, a Christ is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
And Isaiah prophesied powerfully. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53 of the suffering Savior who would be crucified. And so Christ is there in the Old Testament. And in Jeremiah, as Israel enters into exile because of their disobedience, Jeremiah prophesied of the judgment of God. And so Christ is pictured in those ways. And in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy of God was proclaimed, and it's of Christ, and the kingship, and the temple sacrifices, and the time of exile, and the prophets. And so over and over and again and again, repeating after repeating, time and time again, and in many different ways, Christ had been proclaimed. And so what we see is that these scriptures that the Hebrew people were hearing all their lives, that they were raised up on, were about Christ. Turn your Bibles, uh, keep your, keep your uh, thumb in Hebrews 1, but turn your Bibles to John chapter 5 and verse 14. Christ himself explains what the Old Testament scriptures had always been. And he's talking to his kinsmen according to the flesh, to other Jews, and explaining to them that you've always been a fan of the scriptures. You've always been studying the scriptures. That from a youth you have known the holy scriptures, Paul would say, to Timothy. Well, Christ is saying the same thing to the people of his day. Um, John chapter 5 and verse 39. Jesus told his hearers, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And Jesus isn't uh, indicating that's a bad idea. And he said, you're right to search the scriptures. They do contain eternal life. And why do they? Well, what he says in the very next part of the verse. It is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures at that moment was the Old Testament. The New Testament didn't exist. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, all the epistles, the scriptures of that day were the Old Testament. And so Christ is telling them, you are searching the scriptures. You should have seen me in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the sacrifices, in the feast days, and in the exile, and in the kingship of David. You should have seen, you should have known about me, because they're speaking of me. And so I think the lesson there, one of the lessons there is that ignoring the Old Testament in our lives, and our walk with Christ, is hurting ourselves. It's giving context to Christ. It's giving a sense that it's more than just a recent plan of God's. That Christ's death and, and suffering and his death and his resurrection were always God's intent. As I study for examination coming up this Thursday... Uh, it'll be via Zoom, and they told me to set aside two hours to be examined. I don't know what possibly they could ask me for two hours, uh, but I'm sure they'll find something. But as I'm studying through, the question comes up in some of my, my study materials, what is the Reformed faith? What is it to be Reformed? We use that word, and we know the word, in to, in so, to some degree, comes from the idea or the time of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and the, the 95 Theses nailed to the door of Wittenberg, the church in Wittenberg in 1517. But the Reformation, being reformed, really doesn't have to do with 
John Calvin or Martin Luther. See, all that was was a return to the scriptures. Being reformed is to have always held to the scriptures. It is to understand that there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's one of the major aspects of being reformed. Many godly people whom I love dearly don't believe there's continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. They look at the Old Testament and they think it's some completely other thing. That the sacrifices were, had meaning unto themselves and in the temple, in the, the, the land possession. And they hold that the Old Testament was sort of God doing a completely different thing than he's doing in the New. Well, one of the aspects of being a Reformed believer is to see continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the, the death, in the cross, in the empty tomb, in the epistles, in the covenants. God had always been working that plan. And so when we read the Old Testament, we should look for that continuity. And that's part of what it is to be reformed, to understand it's the same God doing the same work for the same purpose. The church existed in the Old Testament. It was called the nation of Israel. And the church exists today. And we Gentiles have been grafted into the church. We're that that wild olive branch. And we're grafted in and now... The churches of every people, tongue, and tribe, and nation. Exactly what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. In you, in your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So one of the things, one of the the encouragements to not give up in the Christian faith is to see yourselves for what you are. You are the work, the handiwork of Almighty God. You exist to bring him glory. He always planned on you. And he's going to look one day, as we mentioned this morning, and say, look what I did with insert your name here. So we see the continuity of the scriptures. Well, this is what had happened many years prior. Verse verse 1, turn back to Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, in many ways. This had been what had been going on. But then the author of Hebrews points to what had been recently going on as the passage continues. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In these recent days, Christ had come and spoken. One of the ways that Christ is referred to, one of the names Christ is given... In uh, John 1 1 in, in the epistles is the Logos. Logos is the Greek word for the word word. Christ is the ultimate, highest expression of God to us. You know how we use words to communicate to each other, to tell each other certain things, to explain certain things? Christ is the word of God. He is the highest form of communication. He's the most intricate, detailed, eloquent, powerful, beautiful message that God gave us. He is the Logos. That's what Hebrews 1 2 says. In these last days, he's spoken unto us by his Son. As we consider Jesus Christ, we should hear God speaking. Because that's what Christ's person and work is it's God speaking to us, telling us about himself. 
And so this is what has recently happened. And he's saying, he's saying uh, in verse 4, he mentions that Christ is superior to angels. And that's what's going to happen as Hebrews chapter 1 continues. The author of Hebrews is going to be, be explain in detail to the Hebrew people that Christ is better than angels. I mean, who, who would not like to see an angel? I would. I mean, I think that would be great. But the author of Hebrews is saying, you could see 10,000 upon 10,000 of angels, but having seen Christ is better. It's superior. Christ is a better communication of God, even than an angel bringing a message from God. Christ is the message from God. And what the angels are really telling you is to look at Christ and to, to focus on him and to know and understand him. So it's better. It's superior. The book of Hebrews will go on to say that through Christ, now we have a better covenant. We have a better relationship. We have a better agreement with God. We have better promises than what they had in the Old Testament. We have a better hope, all because of what has been communicated in Jesus Christ. He goes on in the passage to, to mention uh, that Christ is the heir of all things, through whom also created the world. I'm going to take those in reverse order. Let's start with Christ having created. And this is one of those things that we'll talk about in time as we get to the Apostles' Doctrine. Think about what Genesis 1-1 says. We can probably all quote it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God, right from the beginning, claims to be the sovereign creator, the one who's the cause of all that, that happened. But then John comes along and begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was very God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John reaches back to Genesis, uses that reference, and explains Jesus in light of the God that you've always worshipped as the creator, Hebrew people, that's Jesus. You didn't know it, but you have always been worshipping Jesus as the creator. And so what the apostles did is they took those Old Testament teachings and they explained it in the light of Christ having recently come. So Christ is the creator, but he's also the heir. He's the originator, but he's also the conclusion. He's the heir of all things. He's why the whole world exists. When we see a sunrise, when we thank God for the breath in our bodies, when we see a flower, a snowflake, we thank Christ the creator. We worship him. And we understand that Christ is going to come back and wrap all this up. And he's the, he's the reason where he exists. He's why we're here. And so as I think about how I spend my money and my time and my life and my efforts and my energies, does it bring glory to Christ or does it do something lesser? And that's not to say we don't have to go to work and that's not to say we don't have to mow our lawn. If anything, those are acts of worship. And going to work to earn the pay, to pay the bills, that's an act of worship. That's something Christ, he's made us stewards over the earth. And as I mow the lawn, as I, as I tend my yard, and as I, as I keep things moving and move, running along, I'm doing 
what Christ has commanded me to do. And so this is, this is our Christ. And so uh, what we see is there is no new revelation. Christ is the final revelation. He's really the last thing that God had to say before Christ returns. He is the message. And so what our passage does, and we'll close with this, is he gives several descriptors. Look at verse 3. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, a Hebrew believer would know the name God. Elohim is what that would have been used in the, in the Hebrew text. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And what the, what the author of Hebrews is saying is the glory of God that you've been focused on your whole life that goes back thousands of years that Christ is the radiance of that glory. It's the difference between flipping on a light switch and being outside in the sunlight. Think of all we wouldn't know about God the Father if it weren't for Jesus Christ. Christ said, in seeing me, you've seen the Father. Christ reveals the Father to us. And if Christ hadn't come and hadn't lived one of our lives on this earth, we'd know so much less about our Heavenly Father. But Christ reveals that. He is the radiance of the glory, the exact imprint of his nature. There's no, there's no difference between Father and Son. What John 1, 1 was saying, the Word was with God and the Word was very God. He upholds the universe by his powerful world. He keeps the sun and the moon and the stars in their orbits. He's why, I always use this illustration. Any mathematicians, anybody really? Value of pi, 3.14159. Two things. Number one, the value of pi is always 3.14159 ad infinitum. Never changes. Picture of Christ who never changes. Also, you may know about the value of pi. It is an infinite evaluation. 3.1.159 to ad infinitum, you know, two, by, two, two, two divided by two is four, or two by, uh, two plus two is four. Well, that's 4.0000. Pi is, is, is a picture of eternity, the way that's calculated. And so in this, Christ is those very things. He upholds the universe. He's, he's what keeps everything the way it's always been running. The passage, passage goes on. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those two phrases are beautiful. After he had made purification for sins. Who did that in the Old Testament? Who, who, what human did that? The priest. After making purification for sins like a priest would, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Who sits on the right hand of the majesty? A king does. And so what we have in this picture is the three offices of Christ. God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Christ is the prophet who speaks to us the message of God. He's the priest who actually literally does make purification for our sins. And he's the king that sits at the right hand of God the Father. The, the author of Hebrews is saying, Christ is it. Don't look for something better. 
Don't look for something other. Look at Christ. Learn him. Know him. The beauty is that there is an infinite knowledge to the knowledge of Christ. We will never, for the rest of eternity, exhaust the the study of knowing Christ. There's always going to be more. There's always going to be new aha moments where we say, wow, that's what that is. That's That's who Jesus is. That's what that scripture meant. That's why he created pi to be what it is. It's going to be an infinite progression of learning more about Christ. We're never going to exhaust the knowledge of him. And so the author of Hebrews points us to the study of Christ in this life. And as I mentioned this morning, not an intellectual knowledge, a knowledge that changes us from who we are to being like him. And so as we sing Christmas carols and as we go through this season, uh, understand we celebrate the incarnation, understand that's part of, we're never going to fully understand how, how one person can be, can be God and man. That's forever going to amaze and fascinate and thrill our hearts that God came down in human form, still fully God, but also fully man, but without sin, yet was in every point put to the test, tempted like we are, but he never sinned. And, and, and even facts like that. So as we celebrate Christmas and his incarnation, remember we're celebrating that about our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And remember we're celebrating the Christ who had, was born to die. And the Christ that died to rise again. And the Christ that rose again to return. And so as we go through the Christmas season, use this as an opportunity to focus particularly on Christ. Family's great. We should celebrate and enjoy our families. But Christ is the reason for the season. And so as we consider a passage like this, it points us to that very thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the infinite beauty and wisdom uh, that you present to us. The, The picture, the way we see the Father because of you the way that um, we will never exhaust our knowledge of you. It will forever delight and and fascinate us. And so, Father, give us a little foretaste of glory as we go through this Christmas season, as we consider passages like this that proclaim to us Christ. Help us to get a little sense of your goodness now, but also what is coming and what you have in, in store for us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's uh, stand together and sing our final hymn for tonight. Uh, Number 208, verses 1 and 3, O come all you faithful. Stand with me, let's sing.